Welcome to The American Ingredient, a podcast that examines race in American society from an academic perspective. Focusing on the work from social scientists and legal scholars, The American Ingredient demonstrates that race is not the only ingredient in making America, but in order to make America, you need two heaping spoonfuls. The creation and maintenance of the Tea Party after the election of Barack Obama and the ascendancy of Donald Trump to the presidency has made many Americans question what exactly happened in American politics. What changes have come about that have allowed these groups to gain so much power and influence, so much so that they're able to influence Congress, influence the Republican Party, but also capture the presidency. Today, we will speak with Professor Christopher Parker of the University of Washington. So today, he's here to discuss his book, change they can't believe in, the Tea Party and reactionary politics in America. This book is co-authored with Professor Matthew Barreto at the University of California, Los Angeles. And in this book, they examine the rise of the Tea Party and what this means for American politics and how they are similar to and different from what we've seen in the past. And furthermore, how they are similar to and different from our understanding of American conservatism. In addition to talking about his book on the Tea Party, Professors Parker and Beretta have also engaged on a book project that examines the rise of Donald Trump to the presidency to understand what shifts have we seen in American public opinion that have created these major shifts in American politics. We begin today's interview with Professor Parker highlighting the purpose of his latest project and demonstrating how it's linked to his earlier book project. So first of all, thank you for the invitation, uh, Professor McDaniel. Um, so my current research project builds on, um, you know, the book on the Tea Party that uh, Matt Barreto and I published in 2013 initially, Change They Can't Believe In. And so the current research project, uh, which is uh, titled um, The Great White Hope, Donald Trump, Race and the Crisis of American Democracy, is it builds on that and it builds on that in, in the following way. So we argue that, you know, one of the main reasons why Donald Trump was successful in his presidential bid is because he basically mobilized the Tea Party or Tea Partiers, you know, who, who really came burst on the scene maybe a couple months after uh, President Obama was first elected and inaugurated. So this book builds on that. And not only does it build on that and that we're looking at, you know, white folks who are, uh, you know, who are Trump supporters, but we're also looking at people of color, which marks a departure from the Tea Party book in which we just mainly looked at whites. In this book, we're looking at whites and people of color. So we're trying to illustrate this dynamic narrative in which you have, you know, whites who support Donald Trump, you know, who are supporting him for various and sundry reasons. But we have one principal reason that I'll get into a little bit later. And then we have the ways in which people of color are responding to the threat of Trump. So the second book definitely builds on or adds on to the first book. Now, first, could you give us a little more information about the first book, The Change We Can't Believe In? Yeah, so basically what motivated that book, it was, uh, actually my second book was supposed to be on patriotism. And then the Tea Party came along, and I kept hearing all these pundits and all these other folks talking about, oh, you know, they're just about small government and responsibility and stuff like that. And then you had the people on the left that were saying that it's just really all about racism and 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 I didn't think either one of them was really true. And so I said, well, you know what? I run a survey research lab here. Let me put together a survey. Matt threw some questions on there, too. And we just went for it. And um, the results we got were 
astonishing. So what the results show that even after we accounted for, let's say, partisanship and racism and ideology, that there was still an impact or effect left over for people who supported the Tea Party. And, you know, and so then we had to go back to the drawing board and actually properly theorize that because we knew it had to be something beyond partisanship, racism, ideology. And we even accounted for some other things like authoritarianism, uh, social dominance orientation, um, ethnocentrism. And so we knew that we had come up with something different, but we just had to go back and theorize it. So that's basically what we did. And so, so one of the motives for the book, at least as far as I'm concerned, you know, was to be able to make room for, you know, these more establishment conservative types, you know, to be able to say, hey, like, look, you know, there are these crazy people out there who are calling themselves conservatives who aren't really conservatives. Right. And they don't necessarily, you know, want the status quo, which most conservatives do. They're really all about maintaining the status quo, among other things. Right. These Tea Party people or these Tea Party conservatives, if you will, these reactionaries, if you will, they actually want to go backwards in time to an America in which, you know, white, male, heterosexual, native born white man Mm -hmm. was the norm. Right. They wanted to go backwards to that America. Hence, you know, the slogan for the Tea Party back in the day was take our country back. Well, that begs the question, take our country back in time or take our country back from home, it really doesn't matter because those are that's a, those are functionally equivalent terms, mm-hmm. right? So, so you have this temporal dimension. We have the same sort of temporal dimension with Trump, make America great again. One of the major critiques within the racial ethnic politics literature is that in many times when we talk about race, it appears to be more about the attitudes of whites towards racial minorities and racial minorities are treated as objects, not as actual yeah. agents. And it appears that yeah. this project brings them in as agents. So can you tell us a little more about what drove that decision and what you're finding in that regard? Well, you know, I really, to be completely honest, I have to credit Matt for that intervention because I was cool with just looking at white folks again. Right. But Matt was like, no, we have to have people of color because we have to show this dynamic Right. Uh, And for similar reasons, you just said, uh, Professor McDaniel, um, because, you know, people of color are rarely we're rarely seen as agents. Right. Especially as it pertains to white folks and our attitudes towards them. And so that's what we did. But the problem was, is that it was damn near an impossible theoretical challenge, because I had to say to myself, like, what am I going to do so that I can use the same basic theory to explain what's happening with Trump supporters and people of color, because they're coming from two different perspectives, right? And so since Matt was so set on it, because I was intellectually lazy about it at first, and so since Matt was so set on it, I had to like really think this through. And so what we found is, is that basically it's threat that underlies both groups, right? People of color and Trump supporters. So with Trump supporters, it's about this sense of existential threat that's rooted in symbolism, like we're losing our country, right? It has more to do with symbolism than it does have to do with sort of this material threat, jobs, economic anxiety. Matt and I showed that in a Tea Party book that that was bullshit, and we we show it in this book as well. So, but for people of color, the threat seems to be both symbolic and material. And so if we think about the sources of threat, um, let's just say for black folks, I know that best, Whenever you see these threats to voting rights for us, that's both symbolic and it's material. It's symbolic in the sense that we've been fighting for this 
since we first got here, we first arrived here. So it means something to us. It carries with it this meaning of inclusion in the American experiment. You know, I talk about this in my first book, right, where these black veterans are like, hey, the, one of the main reasons why they're over there willing to fight for a country in which you're not really seen as first class citizens is that it was about the right to vote. It had a lot more to do with what it meant than what it actually did, the right to vote. And so there's that symbolic component to it. Now, the material component has a lot to do with continuing discrimination because that affects us in a material way. So for people of color, the threat is symbolic and material, whereas for whites or Trump supporters who are whites, it tends to be more uh, symbolic threat. And so what we find is, is that the more people of color that see Trump as a threat, right, it, it increases the likelihood of turning out. This is just straight up turnout by at least 60 percent. And so what we also show by way of simulation is, that, you know, Matt conducted some simulations. And what he showed is, is that in those three states that were key, was it Wisconsin, Michigan and Pennsylvania? What we show in a book, you know, through Matt's simulations is that if one changes the turnout for people of color by 0.78 percent, not even a whole percentage point, it flips those three states. Mm -hmm. If you change it by one and a half percentage points, Hillary flips Florida as well. So what does that tell us? It suggests that, you know, that people who saw Trump as a threat, you know, I mean, it really mobilized people of color. But the fact is, is that Hillary Clinton lost in some key states that she should have won. What does that tell us? That tells us that at least in those states, that not enough people of color saw Trump as a threat. That's what that tells us. So what reasoning do you have for him not being perceived as a threat to certain groups of color? I just think he wasn't seen as a threat because most people didn't think he was a viable candidate. They saw him as a clown. They saw him as a clown. Now, if we were to go back and collect data and do this now, you know, nine months, 10 months into his presidency, I think the story would be different. You know, I think more people of color would see him as a threat. Right. And so therefore, I think it's possible that if we were to redo this again, or as we used to say back in the day, run it back. And I think he would probably lose. Could you go into a little more detail about the symbolic threats that Trump supporters saw? So we talked about the symbolic and material threats for blacks or African-Americans. What were the Trump supporters seeing in terms of their symbolic threats? I know there's the issue of immigration. There's yeah. uh, you kind of mentioned the idea of there's seems to be a race and gender aspect to this. What are some yeah. of the major symbolic threats that they saw? Well, this idea that they're losing their country, right? They're losing their country culturally, you know, when it comes to like same sex rights. Mm -hmm. Right. They're losing their country both racially and culturally when it comes to people of color, especially Latinos. Right. They just see this as their country. Right. Now, whenever I give a talk on this stuff and they say, well, oh, only real Americans should vote. I'm like, oh, we talking about uh, Native Americans. Who are we talking about here, dog? Who are we talking about here? So but they see this as their country like they own it. Right. And that and see, that's one way in which they are. They are separate. They're a different species of, quote unquote, conservative, if you will, because if you think about who conservatives are, conservatives are by nature very, very pragmatic people. They're about they're about cutting deals. No. Do they necessarily want to see a change to the status quo? No. But you know what? They'd rather have incremental, more organic control change if it's going to stave off revolution, you know, the no change at all. And it leads to a revolution, whereas these reactionary conservatives they don't really care about law and order, right? They don't really care about the status quo. They actually want to go backwards in time and they're willing to do whatever it takes to maintain the prestige of their group, 
And when I'm referring to this group, I'm once again, I'm making a reference to white male Christian native born straight men. Right. Mm. And over time, it is the same demographic that is always engendering or causing these reactionary movements. Think about the the Know Nothing Party of the 1850s, right? You think about the Klan of the 1920s, right? And what I'm referring to are national reactionary movements, not not something that was local or regional, like the first Klan was regional. Mm-hmm. Second Klan was national, right? So we think about the Know Nothing Party, you think about the Klan of the 1920s, you think about the John Burke Society of the 1950s, you think about the Tea Party, you think about the Trump supporters, right? Every single time, it is the same demographic Mm -hmm. that is causing a problem. And so what happens is they always want to go backwards in time. And so that's and so therefore they they constitute a real tangible difference from more establishment conservatives. I mean, back in the day, like five years ago, Bob Dole observed that neither he nor Ronald Reagan would be fit for today's conservative party. Mm -hmm. And so let me just get to the point I was trying to make is that most conservatives tend to be rational. They want to cut deals. Right. Most conservatives would not agree that they own this country, that this country is theirs per se. But a reactionary figures that this country is theirs. And so what I'm trying to do right now as I push the research forward is to try to fit the Kahneman and Tversky model of risk aversion, you know, to try to separate out or, if you will, discriminate between reactionary and establishment conservatives in the following way. Because if you think about the Kahneman-Tversky stuff, loss aversion or the Thaler uh, endowment effect, right, it's this idea. The Kahneman-Tversky that Professor Parker is referring to are Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, two psychologists who examined how individuals make decisions and how they may make decisions which seem irrational at the time. Their work has been pioneering in the area of social psychology and attempting to understand the decision-making of individuals. It's so pioneering, in fact, that in 2002, Professor Kahneman was awarded the Nobel Prize. In regards to Professor Parker's discussion of Kahneman and Tversky, what they found is that when individuals perceive a loss, they're more likely to engage in risky behavior. So in the case of voting for President Trump, Professor Parker argues that if individuals perceive that they are losing their nation or that they are in some ways being relegated uh, to a lower position, they are more likely to engage in risky behavior, such as supporting risky policies or even a candidate that may be seen as somewhat risky. So this is what he finds. He says, "Okay." he supposes, "Okay, let's say you buy a two dollar bottle of wine today and somebody wants to buy it from you for two hundred dollars two years from now. Now, economic rationality would suggest that you would sell it, right? But because you have the sense of ownership of it now, you don't want to give it up. Well, I think the same thing applies to these reactionary conservatives. Like, they think they own the country, right? So even if the country is making progress otherwise, but that comes at a cost to them of racial diversity or cultural diversity, they don't want to give it up. So that's one way in which I think that they mark a departure from these more establishment conservatives, where an establishment conservative would be like, okay, as long as the country's moving forward and it doesn't foment revolutionary change, we're cool. So that's one of the things that we do in a Tea Party book is try to show differences between establishment and reactionary types. And we essentially do the same thing here in the Trump book as well. You know, there's this argument about is this reaction in anger or is it in fear? So you see a lot of the media talking about the role that fears played into this, but you also see a number of academics talking about anger. So what emotion do you really think is is coming through on this? 
it's anger and anxiety. It's not so much fear. Okay. I'm not saying that some of them don't feel fear, but if you think about the emotional appraisal literature, the response to a fear-based stimuli is to move away from the from the stimuli if it's about fear, right? If it's about anger, uh, okay, anxiety is a little different insofar as there's a sense of uncertainty, right? And mm -hmm. you want to try to rid yourself of this uncertainty. And in some cases, that could be a withdrawal away from the stimulus, or it could be going towards the stimulus to try to get some closure, right? Mm -hmm. Anger is a lot less ambiguous. Anger is a sense of you've been violated in some kind of way, and you want to take action to correct this perceived violation. And so in the present case, Trump people believe that they're losing their country, their country's being stolen from them, and they want to do something to recover it. And they see Trump, Trump symbolizes the only thing that's standing between them and the loss of their country to social, cultural, and racial change. So theirs is an emotional reaction that is founded more on anger than anything else because they're doing something about it. All right. Now, how does this research advance our understanding of political behavior in American politics? Specifically, what types of contributions do you offer to the literature? Furthermore, how might this project lead us to question some of the things that we thought were true in the past? Well, one of the things we've been able to challenge or at least add to is that this sense of what symbolic predispositions, they aren't limited to party ideology or more recently, uh, ethnocentrism and authoritarianism. We show theoretically that this, what we call this reactionary impulse or reactionary conservatism is also a valid source for social political attitudes and behavior. So basically we add to that literature and that what we do is we have all these other uh, explanations uh, for white attitudes and behavior in the model, and we're able to show that even with this relatively poorly measured proxy for reactionary conservatism, as to say support for Trump, that there still is a, um, a unique explanation that accrues to that over and above all these other more conventional explanations for social political attitudes and behavior. So in the Tea Party book, see, most people have been writing about, you know, Tea Party members and Tea Party organizations. And so what we wanted to say, we wanted to say, okay, look, we're just talking about supporters, right? We're not even talking about members. We're not talking about organizations. We're talking about supporters. And we did that for two reasons. One is because, you know, supporters are going to be a lot more wide ranging than members per se for a variety of reasons. One, you know, members are probably going to be a little more committed than supporters. And two, one another reason for membership over mere support is that, you know, for biological reasons, as Doug McAdam talks about in his book on Freedom Summer, you know, that there are some people that are more predisposed to be members than people that are just uh, supporters because they have the means and a wherewithal and the resources with which to be members, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so, so what Matt and I show, Matt and I show like, look, you don't necessarily have to be a member or a part of one of these organizations, you know, in order, you know, to be a part of a movement that affects change or challenges the status quo. So one of the things we show in the Tea Party book that if you look at Tea Party members, that was probably about two percent of the adult population. But if you look at Tea Party supporters, you know, that was a tenfold increase to about 20 percent. OK. Right. Okay. So we're talking about a much larger group of people through their public opinion. Right. That can affect change. So from a theoretical and substantive level, you know, we add to the social science literature or social movements literature in that sense. So, so I would say the principal things that we add um, are, are, A, this idea that, you know, that symbolic predispositions aren't limited to, you know, 
the usual suspects, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that that we do think this reactionary conservative reactionary impulse is socialized during childhood. And another reason why we embedded it within the symbolic predisposition literature is that we don't always think it's active. I think it, you know, according to Sears, it has to be activated in the current political environment, right? Mm-hmm. These people are always there, right? It just has to be activated. And then the whole social movement stuff about supporters versus activists versus members, right? That's another thing that we add to the literature as well. You mentioned that this is in addition to the social movements literature. So could you uh, elaborate on how uh, how we should understand this as a social movement? So a social movement, I think, properly understood is generally trying to challenge the status quo. Now, when we normally think of a social movement, we normally think of a left wing social movement and left wing social movements or challengers are typically the ones that are challenging the status quo. Now, a right wing social movement is trying to maintain the status quo or even go backwards in time. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the literature on on right wing social movements in Europe vis-a-vis the United States, the former dwarfs the latter. We know all about left wing social movements in the United States. Right. We know almost nothing about right wing social movements. So so it's a social movement in the sense that you have this mass of people that are part of the polity that are trying to get something from government as a collective. Right. There's a sense of identification among this mass of people that you have these sets of issues that are sewn together by this set of beliefs that mobilize them to try to get something from government. That's one kind of loose way of thinking about what a social movement is. So so an example of a kind of social movement that is a more conservative, establishment conservative social movement that is trying to maintain the status quo, now just think about, you know, what brought Ronald Reagan to power, right? And on the way, brought Richard Nixon to power. Well, you know, this all really started in the 1960s with the failure of the Goldwater campaign. Mm -hmm. Right. They were basically trying to maintain the status quo. Now, the reason why Goldwater was so successful and got the nomination in the first place was because of this more right wing part of the Republican Party that was constituted from the John Birch Society. They're the ones that actually pushed Goldwater to power. The John Birch Society, which was founded in 1958, is a self-described conservative advocacy group. It was its strongest in the 1960s as a group that spoke out against communism and what it saw as uh, a changing of American values. And while it has faded away from the America's attention, it is evidence that it is growing. In particular, the group has been able to influence policy regarding the U.S.'s relationship with international organizations such as the United Nations or international trade agreements such as NAFTA. Further, they have called for a drastic change in immigration, opposing the DREAMER Act, and called for the U.S. to return to its traditional values, and have further argued that the federal government has drastically overstepped its constitutional rights and has violated states' rights. They have called for a drastic reduction in the size of the federal government, with the hope being that the nation can return to what they believe is traditionally what it's supposed to be. And so while the group has decayed over time, there are signs that it is growing. And these are the concerns of many on the left who are concerned that the rise of Donald Trump is also seen as a resurrection of the John Birch Society, which has been seen as the antithesis of many of the progressive movements. Those were folks from the John Birch Society who actually wanted to go backwards in time, who actually thought that that President Eisenhower was a communist dupe and he was in bed with the Soviet Union. 
right, that that Justice Chief Justice Earl Warren was also in the communist camp in cahoots with communists. And they also thought the civil rights movement was part of a larger communist conspiracy to take over the United States. So here now we start think we start discussing this conspiratorial discourse that these reactionary movements peddle. We, you know, we, you know, we can see it with the John Birch Society. We saw it with the Klan. We saw it with the Tea Party. You know that that Obama was trying to destroy the country, and now we're seeing it with Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so the, you know, this is you know one of the things you know we argue in this book, and I'm certainly arguing in the Trade Press book on which I'm currently at work, is that look, this Donald Trump thing is nothing new, right? This has been happening for a long time, and one of the things I argue in my separate my Trade Press book is that one of the reasons why damn near all these pundits blew it, you know, blew this prediction when it came to Trump and why they were so surprised, because they failed to put him in historical perspective. If you put him in historical perspective as, you know, this reaction or racial retrenchment to racial progress, it's not hard to miss. We can think of Reconstruction, post-Reconstruction. We can think of the reaction to the Civil Rights Movement. Um, and it appeared that, you know, it was a very swift. So if you think of Obama in, in, in office for eight years and then a very swift yep. negative reaction, do yep. you think the retrenchment came faster than we've seen in the past or around the, about the same amount of time? Do you think? No, was, I think it came. I think it came much faster. OK, <laughs> I think it came much faster. OK, the only other time retrenchment happened this fast is was during redemption after after Reconstruction. Mm-hmm. Because that happened immediately. Yes, I mean, like yes. there was like no break. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it was pretty. I mean, think about it. It actually started happening right after Obama took office and it culminated with with uh, Trump's election. But think about what happened. 2010, you know, led by the Tea Party, you know, Republicans retake the House. 2014, they retake the Senate. 2016, they retake the White House. One of the things you, you've talked about, a concept you've talked about is symbolic predispositions. Can you go into a little more detail about what a symbolic predisposition is? Yeah, symbolic predisposition is this idea that we have these values, for lack of a better term, that guide or inform the way that we see the world, especially the way in which we react to political phenomena. And these are things, according to David Sears, that have been socialized since childhood, right? And they are more or less latent, but they become activated in what he would call the current political environment, whatever the political environment is, they become activated by some stimulus, and so these, when these things are activated, these predispositions are activated, they help inform the way we see the political world. So I know there have been a number of people who, you know, in talking about the symbolic predispositions who made this pushback, there are a lot of people who've argued that there are counties that, you know, voted for Obama, but then voted for Trump. If they have these reactionary, uh, if they have these symbolic predispositions, why weren't they activated in 08, but were activated in 2016? So that's a really good point. First of all, what the literature shows is that these people weren't necessarily Democrats to begin with, mm-hmm. right? That they were independents, right? Mm-hmm. They were essentially free agents. So that's A. B is that I don't think these people saw Obama as a straight up black man like they see the rest of us. Okay. They saw him as exceptional, mm-hmm. right? He wasn't like the rest of us. They saw him as exceptional. They saw him as, I'm going to just, just say it, the magic Negro, mm-hmm. right? He ain't like the rest of us, yeah, right? Yeah. There have been some there have been some studies in the social cycle literature that show that, you know, there are many whites who did not see Obama, you know, as as a part of the black community called the black community. Okay. They saw him as exceptional. And because he was exceptional, 
in some cases, they were these people were harder on the black community insofar as they would say, well, one of y'all made it. How come the rest of you guys can't do as well or can't do well? Right. So so in that sense, I think that they saw him as exceptional. Okay, and so when do you think you begin to see the flip where he becomes connected to the black community? Whew, man. Oh, man. Wait, what? No, we're talking about different folks. If we're talking about these Tea Party people, he's mm-hmm. always part of the black community, right? Okay. If we're All talking right. about these Obama, uh, these Obama Trump people, mm-hmm. when did that? When did that happen? I'm not so sure he ever did become part of the black community when it comes to for them. When, it, when we're talking about these Obama Trump flippers, okay. But the idea is th- the racial threat became realized for them. Yeah, I think I think it became more realized to them. But also, I don't think all of these I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I don't think all of these Trump supporters were motivated by race. Right. So I so I do think some of these Trump supporters, you know, they they hated Hillary. Right. (laughs) These Trump supporters who flipped, they hated Hillary. They wanted some kind of change. Some people are single issue voters. Right. They could have been voting on the basis of national security. They could have been voting for Trump, thinking that he'll shape up once he takes office. Right. So there, so so there are various reasons why you know you could have some of these people who voted for Trump, especially the flippers, who weren't racist, but they voted for him for other reasons. What kind of challenges did you face in pursuing this project? I mean, because this could be <laughs> extremely uh, controversial. What types of challenges did you face? Man, ooh, man, I have, man, right up to now, I've really had the muzzle on. Uh, <laughs> as, I, as I think about this, professor. It is pretty, it, man. Oh my God! If you sat Matt and I down and talked to us about all the book, man, you would not. Maybe you wouldn't be surprised at all the hate mail I know that I've received. Mm-hmm. You know, since since two thousand since two thousand ten, when the Tea Party data first started hitting and getting published, right? I mean, I got so much hate mail. I got so mad, I had to get up, put on blood pressure meds. Oh wow! Okay. Oh no, I was really upset. It got to the point where these people would email me or call me and I'm like, here's my phone number. Here's my address. Come get some. (laughs) So it got really bad. Beretta and I got attacked in the wall street journal. No surprise, but the way that the attack took place by this guy named James Taranto, this editorial writer, he said, these two guys wrote this book on the tea party. He says, one's a black man. One's a Latino man. What do you expect? They're going to find. Okay. Right. I'm talking about, I'm talking about even presenting this stuff. I don't shy away from challenges or conflicts. So so and and I know it's presented some professional challenges for me as well. Right. I mean, it's like it's like I'm 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 unapologetic about who I am as a black man. I'm unapologetic. And so when I present it and, you know, when these white men look at the demographic to which I refer. Right. They're like, that's me or somebody I know. And they get defensive. And I get that. Right. I get that. Let me give you one example. Presenting in a sociology department. Right. And so the sociologist asked me a question after the Tea Party book had just come out, man. Mm-hmm. And so I'm showing all these signs that people, were, you, know, you know, people were saying about Obama, calling him all kind of names and stuff like that. So at Q&A, this very senior professor there in sociology there, he goes, so let me get this straight. He says, he says, are you trying to tell me that that Obama was more disrespected than President Bush? And I had to calm myself down. I was like, did you just hear what you said? You referred to. Bush as President Bush and to President Obama as Obama. So I'll let you figure that one out. <laughs> so, so, so it's these kind of challenges, Professor, right? And you, I just don't let it get to me anymore. <laughs> well, Professor Parker, thank you so much for uh, participating. Uh, we, I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to speak with us. No worries, Professor McDaniel. Thank you for the invitation. All right. Have a good day.
Thank you for listening to The American Ingredient. I'm Eric McDaniel, a professor in the Department of Government at the University of Texas. I would like to thank Michael Heidenreich and Jacob Weiss for their assistance, along with the Department of Government at the University of Texas and the University of Texas's LEITS Development Studio. Thank you.